Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast, Stoked you're here. Today, exciting episode that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. I have a conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. He's an author and a palliative care practitioner out of Canada. He wrote the book, Die Wise, that is one of my favorites. He has lots of insights on dying and death and the culture that surrounds it in the Western world. He is, uh, the book is one of the most insightful and thought-provoking books I've ever read, and I can't recommend it more. On this episode, I'm gonna sh- you're going to hear me share with him an experience I recently had where my friend died in an avalanche while we were skiing together. This happened in March, and it's been a big life event for me. Um, One of the things about this podcast that I am most proud of is that I'm not interviewing people as a way to extract their insight and bring it to you. These conversations are even realer than that, and I hope you appreciate it, that type of conversation. So, Uh, Without further ado, let's jump into it, Um, but before we do, I want to ado you with uh, just some celebrations of my life coaching practice that I've been focusing on men and transforming their capacity to relate to people and communicate, and the work has been very, very rewarding lately and have been um, getting awesome feedback and watching these men flourish in their relationships and lives and and kind of growing up together. So um, if you have existential knots or if you'd like to learn to relate and communicate better and make your life better, check out the website. There's a coaching page and a link for a free intro call. So there it is. Oh, also, I just want to let you know that at the end of this conversation, I think I'm going to put a recording for the speech that I gave at my friend Eric, who died in the avalanche. I'm going to put the speech that I made at his uh, celebration of life at the end of this recording. So if you're interested, hang in till then. Here we go. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the Willie Nelson of death. Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. Here we go. I've fully accepted the uh, the who knows what of it all. Great. Well, I appreciate you uh, you meeting with me. You're welcome. Thank you too. I should say out front. You know, I've never met a real daredevil before. At least not that one that showed. So this should be something. Good. I'm glad. Um, I think that there's something I can inform you of. And likewise, uh, I would just start by saying that your work has been uh, incredibly useful for my life, and I'm so grateful for it. I love it. I And I've uh, I've shared it with a lot of people who have also found great utility in it. And I have wanted to talk to you for a long time because 
reading your work, there is something about palliative care that is different than the death trade that I work in. And that is that with palliative care, people know they're dying. And in my trade, we're all trying not to die. And not so much in the in the clinging to the last days of our life way as much as trying to have a great time doing things that are really dangerous. And most of us have a pretty a pretty deep understanding at times everyone is different but most of us have a pretty deep understanding of the consequences but the consequences elude us in the deepest knowings the deepest way we can know it and yeah. recently and it just makes my heart heavy to even think about it but tomorrow will be a month since a good friend of mine died in an avalanche while we were skiing together So I know about it now in a way I didn't a month ago. And that wasn't even my first fatality I had dealt with in my sports. But I guess as I dealt with that again, I, I learned about it in a new way. And... Ultimately, it's been a gift. It's been a strange and painful gift to witness his death and to care for his body and belongings after his death. To be able to see him and touch him and to give him what became a much coarser care than I had ever known shook me and scared me and had me reflect on my own risks as uh, the risks that I take in my life, what is meaningful, what I hope for in my life, as well as the prospect of my own death. And <clears throat> it's so relevant to the things that I have read in your work and one of the things that I spoke to his friends and family at his funeral this weekend was that one of the biggest parts of the gift of his death was that I felt guided and informed to my own death, even my accidental one. That sad and tragic it may be, but wrong couldn't be.
So one of the things I've been hoping to talk to you about, one of the things that I've been hoping to ask you is What do you know about this kind of death? It's different than dying in a car accident that you didn't expect. Because the car accident is almost more of a have to. But we don't have to be flying paragliders or jumping off cliffs or skiing in really big mountains. You sure about that? No, I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not. And it's interesting because that's a, that's a useful point. And since Eric died, the first thing that I thought was, oh, I don't have to do this. I could do something else. And there is a semblance of choice there. Mm -hmm. But I started skiing when I was eight. And I did my first flip when I was 12. And that path has just kind of unfurled in front of me. I think I'm just wrestling with my own hypothetical accidental death. And I'm also wrestling with the philosophical and emotional implications of the fatal risk that we have in these communities that I don't think the community quite, so often I don't think we have it quite right our relationship to that piece of it isn't quite right. And I can give you a number of examples of how it's fucked up, but I'm not exactly sure what is the right relationship to it. And I am striving to have some kind of insight that I can disseminate to my friends and the people that might have to be in the mountains. Ultimately, Eric's death was a gift to me, and I'm proud of how I showed up in that. You know, one term from your book that I think about a lot is a a faithful witness. Mm -hmm. And there were moments I... my body and my psyche just wanted to have reprieve from his body and my proximity to his body and to look at his wounds. I wanted to, I, you know, there was something in me that wanted to look away 
but ultimately, you know, 10 hours later when we had him out of the mountains, the proof was in the pudding that I didn't. A lot of ground you've articulated. What what would you like me to I mean triangulate our jump off point here now? What would you like me to speak to or what what do you want yeah. to hear from me about or or if there's something specific you want to ask? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you letting me share and I think there's something <clears throat> in me that just wanted to be seen as a, you know, for my one day in the life of some kind of death worker there with Eric. Um, I think I'd like to hear from you. Any thoughts you have on the implications of our accidental deaths in the things <clears throat> that we do that we like? Recreational accidental death. What does it mean? How do we hold that? What is right relationship to that? You know, as you poked somewhat gently, at my notion that I don't have to do that, I might have to do that. So I think I'm kind of looking for insight around that. Okay. You used the word accidental death, particularly in the last few minutes, several times. In fact, you could go further and say the word accidental is crucial to your formulation, not only of the question or the dilemma that you're articulating, but your orientation to it as well is predicated on what makes this accidental. So there's the first thing you can start to wonder about on your own behalf is why you, I'm going to push it a little further and suggest that you require this to be an accidental death mm. in order to maintain the general take on things that has probably allowed you to do what you're doing. There's That's number one. Here's number two. So what makes it accidental? What do we mean? What are we achieving? What are we crossing off the list when we use the word accidental to describe anything? So this is a more general observation before we get particular about dying. 
Thirdly, is accidental related in any way to sudden? Mm. And if it is, let's ruminate for a minute on what a sudden death conceivably is. <clears throat> now, by definition, it seems to me sudden and accidental have a kind of kinship about them. Mm. And you could you could gesture like this and cover mm. both territories fairly well. Shrug. The gesture being, for those of you who are not uh, watching, I'm I'm shrugging, kind of one of those palms up, up, you know, shrugs that one does when when basically what you're saying is go figure or who knew or how could you know or, and of course, upon any reflection at all, you begin to realize the thing breaks down almost instantly when you say it out loud. And I'm not talking about extremity circumstances like you are. I'm talking about, you know, getting up in the morning walking out the door not that extreme really mm. and so what do we mean when we say sudden death we mean couldn't have seen it coming we mean utterly and completely taken by surprise and taken aback because of it so you probably know what comes next at least from me what comes next is there's no such thing as sudden death sudden death doesn't describe the death not in any way shape or form sudden death describes your willingness to know death a priori, ahead of time, when the circumstances wouldn't seem to require it of you, wouldn't seem to require it of you. But if you're a grown-up, by any vague definition of the term, you're not capable of sudden death. <clears throat> sudden death will elude you constantly throughout your life. Why? Because it's utterly foreseeable, that's why. Mm. Because it's not a mystery. It's not hidden from you. It's not a blank zone in your understanding. It's not a blind spot in the rearview mirror of your life. No, sudden describes completely and utterly your willingness to proceed as if you know this. And the unwillingness to proceed produces sudden death. That's where right. it comes from. We're the manufacturers of sudden death, even though we live the most sedate of lives, most of us. But we manufacture the notion of sudden to cover the kind of blind spot in the rearview mirror. See, it's completely knowable, though. You know it, and I know it too, that your dying's not in the future. Oh, look, the particulars, the circumstances, the where and the when and the the why of it. Yeah, that's nominally in the future. But the what of it, the if of it, the that of it. That's now. That's the reason you and I are talking. You wouldn't be talking to me if this was just a post-mortem discussion about the demise of your friend. That's for sure. This is coming from a completely different orientation to life. Mm -hmm. The life that acknowledges, despite itself, <clears throat> that for the most, again, the most sedate of our lives... We, we conduct it in the presence of the givenness of our death. Or do we? So let's sort of dolly back for a second from the circumstance of extremity and make it a, a kind of demographic observation. In any given year, about 65 million of us die. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. As soon as you say the number, some part of your mind just goes slack. You can't do anything with 65 million people. You can't count them. You can't feel anything about it in particular. 
uh, you can't uh, invest yourself in an investigation of 65 million anything. Never mind 65 million dead people who have who have begun to die during the course of me saying this very sentence. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be you and I right now, but 65 million is a lot of people. So it also happens that half of those people in any given year are under five years of age. Mm-hmm. These are just facts of life or mm-hmm. facts of the rest of life. So there, there's something. And that kind of makes the head skew in a certain direction. Oh, man, a lot of kids, like 32 and a half million kids. You kidding? Apparently, it's not kidding. Apparently, that's the way it is. Year in and year out, regardless of plagues or or, or uh, pandemics or business as usual, 32 and a half million kids. Okay. Now, we don't, we don't procreate at the same level. We procreate at an accelerated level relative to what I just told you. That means that any given day, the day ends up with more people on the planet than there were when the day started, no matter how many die, basically, right? So you could say then that you and I and everybody we know and everybody we don't know, we exit this place in our millions. We enter this place in our millions. But we linger here between those two poles in our billions. Hmm. So do we, in fact, linger between these two poles in our billions? Or do we lose track of at least one of those poles ongoingly and proceed as if lingering in our billions is the state of affairs, Hmm. not the coming in, not the going out? Okay? Okay. So... What I'm suggesting to you here is is it kind of borders on the unspeakable or the almost irrational. And it goes like this. Dying in the English grammatical structure is by definition an active verb. You can't use the verb in a passive voice in a sentence and make sense of yourself, nor of what you're saying. So no matter what you think personally and theologically and all the rest, When you use the verb to die, you're using it to describe something that you do or something that he did, right? So to get the passive feeling into it, you have to actually change the verb. So either he died, that's what he did, or if he didn't do it, then he was killed. And you know immediately in your bones that dying and being killed are not synonyms. They don't even feel the same. They don't feel they're in the same universe. Being killed conjures up a whole other degree of stuff mm-hmm. and associations and feelings and reactions and so forth that dying doesn't, that the word dying doesn't, you see. Okay, so what's the point? There's no the point. But if I would gather some of these things I've just been saying to you, it would perhaps come to this. You began half an hour ago or so with the allegation, I'm going to call it that, in a friendly way, the allegation that the people I work with are different from the people you work with, Hmm. in the sense that (laughs) you people are trying not to die. And the people I work with know they're dying the whole time. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you that's not the case at all. Hmm. The people I worked with, in fact, the only reason I had a job Mm -hmm. to do 
The only reason there was a task before any of us was because these people came to their dying time, staggered, stunned, ripped off, mm-hmm. and grievance bound by the whole operation. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't true, there'd be nothing for me to do. I'd just sit there and go, well, this is it. And they'd say, yep, knew it all along. And I'd say, yep, any questions? And they'd say, not really. I'd say, okay, if you do, you can call. And that'd be it, time after, after time after time. But it never happened that way. Never. People looked at you like, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. And and the rest, you see, that's number one. And number two, virtually every one of those people, there are exceptions, of course, but to make the point strenuously, the vast majority of these people were doing exactly what you and your friends are trying to do, mm-hmm. not to die. The truth of the matter was that they were trying not to die in the presence of their dying. Mm-hmm. You could go further and say, the terminal diagnosis that now accompanies them every day and every night is what prompted them to engage in the questionable and liminal activity of trying not to die while they were dying. Mm -hmm. Whereas you guys seem to be trying not to die, quote, while you're living, unquote. Mm -hmm. I don't know how different those two orientations to life might actually be. Because the strategies and the schemes and the viewpoint on the matter is remarkably similar, actually. Mm-hmm. Right? There's much more in common as I as I think about it here for the first time mm-hmm. between those two groups of people than either group might allow. In fact, you could say the dying people would willingly change you the risk, the risk factors. Mm-hmm. They would trade you their oncological risk factors. For your extreme sports risk factors. Yeah, surely. Yeah, of course they would. A lot funner risks. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, not from sitting where I'm sitting. No, but I I understand sitting from where you're sitting is a different understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what Mm -hmm. do you think of all of that? I think that that is painfully astute. And it it brings up it makes it almost a bit ridiculous that one would be engaging in such a dangerous behavior while trying not to die. The idea that a death is only sudden if I refuse to know that it's possible or refuse to know that it's ongoing, occurring, or around me is... um, That's illuminating, and I see in myself those schema that keep me from seeing that. And I have referred to Eric's death that he was killed in an avalanche. And it's kind of a, 
it's a, I have a hard time squaring that circle, even though philosophically I can grant you that because of the way he died. The force of nature in an avalanche is unimaginable, and the effect it has on our bodies is just to call it unspeakable. Mm -hmm. So it elicits in me a desire to be mature and to be an adult in the way that you've listed, that I can see these things and that there is something more profound about engaging in the behavior while holding reality in right relationship, the way things are. As you say, 32 and a half million kids dying is just a painful shape of the way things are. And I don't want to be disillusioned while being a professional practitioner in these kinds of sports that can kill me. And I want to be able to hold my own death and right relationship and steward my friend's death in a way that is honoring of their life and informing of all of our perspectives, although that's maybe a bit too much to bite off. But I think you illuminated pretty well the potential disillusionment there in the perspective of accidental or sudden and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how a person in my position might hold death in right relationship. The healthy, what is the, what is the mature, how do I maturely hold this for myself and others? And You know, it's interesting because in my sports, you know, you've talked about death-phobic culture, and I think we have it in our sports, and I think it is manifests as a addiction to safety, conversations about safety, best practice, ways to avoid it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to shame that conversation. That conversation is important and useful. Basically, anytime anyone dies or has an accident, we analyze the accident trying to find the human error mm -hmm. so that we can essentially convince ourselves that we won't make that error. Right. You're going to have to find another error to make instead because you've learned that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
but it's basically a it's a way to tell ourselves that he died because he did something wrong and if i just don't do anything wrong i right. won't die no i'll die of something else exactly i'll die of old age <laughs> well that's not what i meant but sure, sure. yeah Okay, so here's a really benign story compared to, you know, the the, the extremity of what we're talking about now. Yeah. But I think it fits. So I was a young guy, and in those days, your mother could send you to the store to buy her cigarettes for her. All you had to do was present a little handwritten note to the guy behind the counter at the grocery store or the, the variety store down at the end of the street. And... <laughs> And this guy would just give you these cigarettes. So I look upon it now with some wonder, but that's how it was at the time. And I knew even then, because I had asthma from a young age. So I knew, and probably it's secondhand smoke that's the cause of it. So I'm probably actually talking about my own nemesis here. But all of that hadn't arrived. There was no such thing as secondhand smoke at the time. Nobody knew about it. Nobody talked about it. And so, but I still remember taking my mother to task virtually every time she asked me to do it, mm. that it wasn't good for her, that, you know, it was clearly it wasn't good for her. And these are the days way before the cigarette packages has those ghastly tumor photographs and all the rest. And you know what her response was each and every time? You could probably guess what it was. It was a, it was a term that I would dare say has shown up in your sports arena way more times than it hasn't either explicitly by what's said or implicitly by the things that don't get said. And it was this. Well, she said, got to die of something. Hmm. And she did of that very thing, not that many years later. Hmm. Yeah. So why am I telling you that? Because it sounds, it sounds heroic, what she said. It sounds like an existential heroism. Like something Jean-Paul Sartre would have come up with after the end of the Second World War. You know, hey, man, this is this is as healthy a relationship to life as you can get. You got to die of something. Mm. It sounds like a testimonial. It sounds like a confession. It sounds like making peace with your maker. Mm -hmm. It sounds it. But of course, I'm not telling it to either uh, question my mother's judgment on the matter or her mothering practices, or her example. But I am saying, what do you mean that you got to die of something? What, what, what does that translate into? Does it translate into uh, a, a regime of self-abuse, which in her case, I think smoking legitimately could be called that? Mm -hmm. Is that is that what it means? If, if you're going to die of something, or you've got to die of something then and your life is conducted in the presence of you got to die of something then dying is just a foregone conclusion and then all you, the incremental decisions you make in the time in between are just forestalling the inevitable is that what we mean when we say this term when we trot this phrase out you got to die of something well i'd rather go out you know uh uh, not with a bang, excuse me, not with a whimper, but with a bang. Mm -hmm. 
there's the heroism showing itself again. You see, the notion being that if you can court disaster, if you can, if you can conjure disaster, no, let's go further. If you can seduce disaster to draw very close to you indeed, that somehow you win. Even it's just living to do it another time, you win. Not dying this time, you win. Wait, dying this time, you win. You just win. Is that the life lesson to be drawn from the fact that you're going to die something? That this is a way of preemptively defeating dying and the have to of it all by seducing it and drawing it really close to you and prevailing because you're not caught unawares and prevailing because you said yes before it got to say no to you. Hmm. This is an amazing calculation, really, when you start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So I use the word heroism very deliberately here to suggest to you that the when heroism enters kind of the spiritual realm, as it clearly has, it's gone from a psychological construct to a, a psycho-spiritual uh, practice, heroism. <clears throat> I think we're in the realm of Oppenheimer's famous observation. You know who uh, Robert Oppenheimer was? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, he he he's, they detonated the thing the first time the... the the reaction really worked, I guess. Mm -hmm. And of course, the the the, not, the seminal cloud rose from the desert floor. And they say, and I've heard it from more than one place, so it's likely to have taken place, that in that moment he said something where everybody was silently watching this enormity that would be at least as enormous as any avalanche bearing down upon you. Mm -hmm. And he said, he quoted of all things the Bhagavad Gita. And he said, more or less, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Hmm. By which I'm suggesting to you this. When you take death into your hands as a human being, you're involved in a degree of psychic, spiritual, mythic, poetic alchemy, which is highly reactive, hmm. highly volatile. And the blowback possibilities are enormous. Mm -hmm. The unintended consequences are virtually a given, certainly in his case. You know, what he had to live with subsequent to Hiroshima and all the rest. Mm -hmm. What we are all collectively living with as a consequence of what he said yes to, and on and on it goes, and it's not just him, and I know that. But I'm just suggesting to you now that taking death into your hands is a God-scaled event. Mm. And we're not built to do God work. We're not built to make sacrifice. That's what the literal word means. It means to make sacred. We're not in the sacred making business. Mm. We don't have the capacity. We're not in the angel making business. We're not in the demon making business until you begin to realize that both of those words simply suggest that there's a thing called a news bringer or a tidings bringer. That's what both angels and demons were etymologically in their origin. And of course, we use the words now in radically departing ways. 
And all that means is we've decided that particular kinds of news are welcome. Mm -hmm. And so the bringers of those welcome news we call angels. And there's a whole other category of news that we don't welcome. And so we demonize the bringer of that and call them demons. Lo and behold, we're in the demon-making business after all. So, you know, on behalf of you and yours, your um, your fellows, let's say, I'm striking a note of really sober consequence here and wondering aloud whether or not you exercising your apparently God-given right to bring yourself into proximity with mortal danger is something closer to what Oppenheimer did than you would ever imagine because of how it attempts to befriend death or neutralize death <clears throat> or tame death in some fashion or uh, domesticate death just enough to get past it, just to get by, just to sneak out the other side, mm -hmm. you know, to elude the avalanche and all the other circumstances. Yes, yeah, very somber business, no? The emotional and even neurochemical implications of the sport are exactly as you say that the eluding the to dance with it to get close to it and not die is the fun part that's what gives that's what that's what gives me a rush my body has this inherent meter of how close to it i am yeah. and my cognitive brain can follow a different thread and the dissonance between the two is what is exciting and let me interrupt your train of thought and ask you a question here based please. on what you said would you say then this is a genuine question i'm not playing gotcha with you at all would you say that that uh, your attachment to that sensation, that clutch of sensations you just described, mm -hmm. is available to you in any other setting, any other activity, any other combination of exposure to people or places or things or thoughts, anything, anywhere? Oh, it just that that thing pervades every aspect of my life constantly that is the it yeah i it pervades every aspect of my life gotcha so, can you can you get it another way though oh socially relationally you know like i would say even public speaking is a great way for me to have that 
fear of social death and to get close to it and to say something edgy, tell a joke, say something um, novel, I think I get a similar sensation from it. Do, do you? Are you sure? Here's why I'm asking this. Because you use the term social death to skip over, you know exactly why I'm asking you this question. And and with all due respect, I think you've used the term social death as a an immediate thing you grasp onto to make an equivalency, to establish an equivalency that you didn't actually explore very much. You just automatically said, oh, social death, same as the avalanche thing. Mm. But in your bones, I don't think you believe, I shouldn't say that. I'm asking you, in your bones, do you believe that these are legitimate uh, similes? You know, risking some kind of disapproval on the podium versus being on the mountain as you just were? No, essentially no. But there's still such a, my somatic experience is, is essentially the whole thing is more of a relationship to fear than it is to death. Right. Right. Very good. Yeah. So I don't think that the two things, fear and death, are similes when I when I get right down to it, but my lived experience is not that different. You know, what makes my heart race and what makes me excited and you know that in that sense, there are so many things that that do that, that elicit that same neuro drug cocktail that I get by eluding death, jumping off of a cliff. Mm. Unfortunately, I find myself, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, I get both sides of the tool. Since I was a kid, this has been the case that the things that scare me are the things that excite me are the things yeah. that I chase after. And, you know, the great benefit is that when my friend dies in front of me, I have enough strength and wherewithal to not faint in the face of shit that makes people faint. Yeah. And the negative is that in my, let's just call it in my relationships, I'm, I kind of always need to push a little bit, always kind of trying to find the edge and push it a little bit further. What a shock that is for you to admit that. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Yeah, I can see the surprise. Yeah, I can see the surprise. So, so experientially, I don't, <clears throat> you know, cognitively, I want to tell myself, oh, that's just social death. That's just social fear of, of being ostracized. You know, that's not a, that's not as valid of a fear as the rocks are hard and my body is soft. But the lived experience is in my body is pretty similar. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could convince myself of one being realer than the other. Mm -hmm. 
but I haven't succeeded in it yet. Something about the serotonin melts the threshold between them. So they become variations of one of the other. Yeah. That's kind of what you're saying. So here's a question for you, which <laughs> might not be a serotonin question. It might be one of the meaning of life questions. So whether you think about this explicitly before you go out, when you're packing your bags, whatever it is, waxing the skis, whatever it is, do you entertain in any way at all the notion that there's such a thing as your time or your turn mm. to die? Is that a real thing? I think the thought crosses my mind pretty often of curiosity, of it's almost more of like a macabre, intrusive thought that is this the last time I'll wax my skis? Is this the last time I'll pack this parachute? Is this the pack job that kills me? Mm -hmm. let, but, let me fine-tune the question okay. for you. I'm not asking about negligence because these are not coefficients one of the other. What I'm asking about is this notion that there's such a thing as your turn, your time, this is it, this you belong to this one, not to all the other ones, and that's why you didn't die before now. That's a different consideration than you packed poorly and because of that you drew it upon yourself mm -hmm. and so all your you know your particulars will be poked through by your friends mm -hmm. and they'll try to learn from your bad packing job and that's how you mitigate against this thing. You see what I'm asking you? I'm asking you a kind of a fundamental meaning of life uh, orientation question here. Not something you can mitigate by heightened awareness by triple checking the packing job. Because if this is it, if there's such a thing as this is it, it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. And that may indeed be your, literally your last thought. Oh, it's today. Oh, it's like this. Yeah. Oh, it's now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think? Is there such a thing? Or do we just say that in hindsight? Go figure, that was the day. You know, I have had on occasion what I would describe more as like an intrusive thought that I try to shake out of my head that the possibility, an thought. yeah, what an unwelcome thought, surely, yeah, an unwelcome yeah. thought that, yeah, or kind of like a feeling. Like a, a kind of a strange feeling that, uh -huh. mm, mm. and that's manifested in a number of different ways. Sometimes I, I just don't go. Right. Some days I'm like, oh, I just like, oh, it's a little too close to me today. I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I don't quite have that spunk in me, because it takes some chutzpah to run and jump off of a cliff. Yeah. 
I've also had the experience a number of times where I thought, oh shit, it's going to be like this. Oh, this is how it ends. Mm-hmm. And the size of the dread. I, I just have one instance in my head, particularly that, you know, maybe you've heard it before that people in dire emergency don't have time to be afraid. Mm-hmm. It was something like that. It was a, I need, there are things I need to do right now to avoid this, but the thought of, oh, this is, this is how I die. I've actually had that. I've had that. Um, there's something that I've recently touched with this recent death of my friend that is actually a bit reassuring and it illuminated for me a fear that I had around my own death. And that was that if I died, all of existence would cease to exist. Mm -hmm. Right? That if I screwed up and I made a mistake and I went in, then my lights were out and all of the lights were out. Mm-hmm. And that's a enormous responsibility mm-hmm. that I was kind of carrying around. And I feel a bit reassured by faithfully witnessing Eric's death and the grief of his girlfriend, the grief of his mother, of his friends, that life does in fact go on with or without me. Mm-hmm. And you, you see how addictive and consequential heroism is. Because that's where that comes from. It doesn't come from the extremity. It comes from the heroism. Surely all the lights will go out when mine do. Yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, the Yeah, sure, that's my the amazing <coughs> depth of my own egocentric worldview was illuminated a bit in Eric's death, right? And I feel yeah. relieved by at yeah. least some piece of that. Yeah. Although that's a program that's likely to keep on chugging along in the background. But to, to kind of go back to your question, I don't know that I don't know that anything that I do in my sports is fully informed by the reality of my death as much as it's informed, fine-tuned, mastered by the 
avoidance. I don't, I don't know if it's avoidance, but it's like a, I want to get close to it, but, and know yeah. it's there, but to elude it every time I'm, I'm aiming to elude it. Right. My, that's mass what seducers do, man. Yeah. Right. You've described the project of seduction very well. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And I'm using the word fairly deliberate to suggest it may not be as noble in its intent as it would appear to be. You know, if you think about seducing another person, you know, one of the games that's on is how much you can get for how little you have to offer up. Yeah. One, right. Two, how can you take without being identified readily or easily or immediately as a thief? Mm. How can you appear to be giving, taking the whole time and somehow get away with it and get to tomorrow? Mm. I mean, all those are in the in the zone. And the, a lot of the language you're employing to describe this comes from there. That's why yeah. I chose the word deliberately there half an hour or so ago. Do you know, I should say, I'm, we're coming to the end of the time that I'm able to be with you for today. Yeah. But um, a lot of your description of your exposure, the consequence of your exposure to all this stuff and seeing your own death and playing it out and, and the mollifying consequences thereof and you know, you could, I could have said exactly the same thing about my time in the death trade and have done so many times. Mm. One of the occupational hazards is literally seeing your death, mm -hmm. you know, not as a projection, Yeah. you know, not something I'm wishing or willing or designing, but by virtue of the process of elimination of uh, the lesser likelihoods, this likelihood that I'm seeing manifest in this person perishing before me mm -hmm. is hauntingly familiar mm -hmm. and seems more likely than the other possibilities. Yeah. Very similar. Hauntingly and, is the good yes, word. Yes, hauntingly, yes. And it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing minus the serotonin. I think it's not very exciting to see it this way, but, but I'll tell you this. Before my time in the death trade, I'm not sure that I was capable of loving being alive. This is going yeah. to sound, this is an extremity of a sort here, but this is utterly faithfully true as I'm telling it to you. I didn't know it at the time because there's that in-between period when all of your understandings are up for grabs and it's not clear that you understand or ever understood anything that's worth talking about. So, but you see these people die, you know, and you're trying to make sense of their thrashing about and their, and and the reactions of the people around them and so forth, the people who claim to love them and all of that. And somewhere in there, you hear that refrain, that tired ass refrain of, well, dying's part of living. And you know that, and you know, nobody means it when they say it. They mean dying's the ending of living, not part of it. It's a different understanding completely because very few people in Anglo-North America live alongside their death. They live prior to their death instead. So you see the parallel I'm drawing from what you're saying. And I'll just go one step further and say, somewhere along the way, me glimpsing the end of this thing I claim to hold dear called being alive and all the things that can come with it, I began to realize that's probably not what that was. I'd, I'd done things that are not indictable offenses, but there it is. I'd grown accustomed to them. I didn't wonder about them anymore. I didn't envision any other possibility but the ones that were piling up around me. 
and so forth. And when I saw the end of everything I claimed to hold in high esteem and high regard and to hold dear and the rest, it was really only then that I could exercise the manifest option of deciding to hold these things dear really for the first time. And from that point forward, whenever that was, my time in the death trade accelerated my willingness, no, my profound appreciation for the fact that I'm still here. I forget it just as readily as anybody can do, right? I, I, on, routinely, I forget it. But it's the amazing thing is, is, you know, I was a kid with spinal meningitis as a, as a three and a half year old, and I was dying at the time. And I just I remember a lot of very particular moments and and nurses' voices and the quality of their touch and all of those things, perhaps much in the same way you may remember incrementally, frame by frame, certain perilous moments mm -hmm. that you've been exposed to. There I was. Something which in my little life sounds remarkably similar. And for all of that, you know, coming through the other side and mysteriously not dying when everybody thought I was going to and all the rest. I grew accustomed to that as part of the biography mm -hmm. and it never really had the effect on my life that you think it should have had, which is to say, son, none of this is guaranteed. Yeah. Come on now. Mm -hmm. Or, or, or something stronger. And it didn't really. And you know what it took? Not the oncomingness of my death to have this consequence. It was the oncomingness of someone else's death. Yeah. There was something about one step removed gave me enough room to see it almost for the first time. Mm -hmm. That was a staggering distinction that suddenly became available to me. And it's really from that moment, probably, that most of the things I've asked you or said to you about this subject, of which I've thought virtually not at all, until you've asked me to do so in front of you like this, mm -hmm. that's where these things are coming from, actually. Yeah. So I hope you can tell <clears throat> that I'm not in any way holding, you know, the the choices that you and your friends make in any kind of degraded esteem of any kind or, you yeah. know, because the invitation here is not to approve or disapprove. I mean, we're grownups here. We don't have to do that mm -hmm. about each other's ways of life. What we can do instead is wonder about it with something that resembles good heartedness mm -hmm. and a good intent, you know, yeah, and, be, and be mystified by these things without being tipped in the direction of disapproval. Yeah. So hopefully that's come through because I certainly mean it to come through. Yeah. I appreciate that. And you know, the, the implication that through my dancing with death, I am seducing and trying to get the most out of life while giving the least. And that I'm trying to keep from being found out as a thief is a there's a certain moral texture to that and mm. i can look back on my life and pretty readily see the moments where i think i was doing that and uh, looking for a cheap thrill and playing with the thing that is more profound than i'm giving it credit for and i'd i'd be interested in 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 talking to you more about what it is that we do to minimize our seduction and to maximize our stewardship of that thing 
And it also your, your statement that seeing other people's death was really the thing that brought it into your view for the first time and reminds you to be in love with living. I have that profoundly right now. I have that mm -hmm. profoundly. And I hope if I'm going to set any prayer for our conversation, it's that I can hold on to that and, and hold that piece earnestly as I go about doing my, my unique dance of, of life. Amen. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you for yours and for the invitation. And, um, by all means, when it seems the right time to do it again, and if both of us are spared to that moment, let's do it again. I appreciate that. That's an interesting use of the word. I have felt like a survivor lately. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Stephen. Good luck. Keep In going. In every way it can be meant, take care, and I'll try to do the same. Okay. Thank you, brother. You bet. See Bye-bye now. Okay, you guys. Hope you enjoyed that. Big conversation and some really interesting things that I've been ruminated on since that conversation, particularly the idea of being a seducer of life and trying to get the most out of life without giving back to it, trying not to be found out as a thief. Those are kind of cutting words that I've been ruminating a lot about lately. So thanks so much for listening. Share this podcast with your friends and your family who could use it. Uh, death is something that has been in my life a lot lately. I lost my dog in December, and then my friend in March. It's been kind of a big couple months for me, and very relevant, uh, and perfectly timely. After Eric died, I reached out to Stephen because I knew I needed to talk to him and have his feedback and wisdom, and I knew I needed to share with him those things. So, here's the talk that I made at Eric's funeral and I will leave you with that my name's Ari and I'm the aforementioned straight man who crushed on Eric Eric was adjacently my friend. We met each other many times in, around town, but the day he died was our, only our second adventure in the mountains together. And it's nice to hear the stories of the people who he touched during his life. And my experience with Eric is that he touched me profoundly in his death. The first day we went to the mountains, he, uh, Ian said he bought a snowmobile, he actually bought two. <laughs> and he picked me up and he whisked me away into the mountains to take me to Broken Top so that I could do this uh, ridiculous ski base jump that I had been planning. And it was kind of like a Fifty Shades of Grey type thing, you know, the real competent, rich guy who whisks you away. And it was, 
It was good. It was real good. Um, he was handsome. And it was a beautiful day, and it went. I jumped off that stupid cliff, and <laughs> and I lived. Um, and it's interesting the relationship we have with the other people we adventure in the mountains with. There's an implicit agreement that we have that when we go out, we, through death or dismemberment, we come back together. Eric's death mm, is likely the most profound experience of my life. And ultimately, it is a strange and painful gift. It's a gift that the utility of which is still trickling into my life in various ways. The first of which was that I was just so grateful to be alive. And the fact that Eric is dead and that I'm unscathed is mostly a matter of luck. And so I feel indebted to life in general, that I am privileged to exist. Eric and I's relationship was a near miss. I feel lucky to have known him. And it has made me consider all the risks that I take in my life. Skiing and base jumping and doing all the ridiculous and amazing shit that we do. When the head of the SAR medical team pronounced Eric dead, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said that at least he died doing what he loved. And I was very angry that he said that and I told him and the whole team that that was just a platitude. But Eric took me to Broken Top to do the base jump on a Tuesday and he died on a Wednesday. And he had real nice toys and lots of time and it became quite clear that Eric was, in fact, spending a lot of time doing whatever the hell he wanted to, which included being on Polina Peak with Ian and I. And he had spent a lot of time doing whatever he wanted to so that he could ride at a level commensurate with that task. And so there is something different. I don't know what meaning to put on it, but there is something different about a death that represents the tip of the recreational spear as opposed to the rest of the hundred billion dead humans that we're all standing on top of. But it is nice to know that he kind of pushed the edge in a certain direction and for that I'm really grateful and I'm almost re-inspired because the accident shook me in a really deep way.
with in regards to how I live my life. And so it's a gift that I was able to reflect on my risk and my life and what it's worth and what I do. And, and it's also a gift to kind of come back and see, no, 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 it is actually worth it to be in the mountains. It is worth it to take risk. I cannot live unless I'm taking a risk. It's a risk to be myself. It's a risk to go. And I get to choose to do it with people who will bring me back. I think I could talk for a long time about the things that I've learned in the last month since Eric died. But one gift that I have that I would hope to share with you is that By seeing him die and by touching him, by touching his body, by caring for his body after his death, by witnessing the grief of his loved ones, by feeling immediately the overwhelming love and care that people had for him, feeling that my life had changed and that all of our lives had changed in that moment because of the relationship we had with him, and that life is still going on, and that I'm still here, I feel in a deep sense I'm guided, and I am informed as to the reality of my own death. It's coming. (laughs) And it's okay. I think that before this, when I thought of my own accidental death doing my sports, when I really dig down into that fear, I think the fear was actually that by making a mistake and dying that all of, exis- all of existence would cease to exist. And I feel reassured by being so close to Eric's death that my death is not the end of existence. <laughs> Maybe I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> Maybe I am. (laughs) It is reassuring, though. I am... The experience is like a brand. I feel branded. A hot iron pressed against my flesh in an acute moment that scarred me and scabbed and is healing in a way that is something now that I think of as some kind of badge of honor, a rite of passage. It is certainly the most human experience I have ever experienced. And I feel more connected to life by being so close to Eric's death than I ever have. And I'm so grateful for that. And so I'll carry him with me for the rest of my life. The day Eric died is something that I can imagine is akin to my first child being born or something profound, an existential profound day. And I'm honored. I'm just honored in the weirdest, 
most beautiful way that I was able to be there with him and to see him out and to care for him and to bring him back. <sighs> Fuck. Ski fast, take chances. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Oh, wait, that's right. My name is also Ed, but with the C's, there's just more of that in there. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Okay. But I, uh, I didn't meet Eric as Eric the King. I met Eric as Squirrel back in 2015. How he got that name. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of randomly get shout out. That's great. Minus uh, <sighs> Dolphins. I'll take it. <laughs> Unless it's like a horror movie, creepy Dolphins. I'll take it. I, I don't have anything near as profound as being his baby or his mom or the people that make sure that he made I only got a snippet of who squirrel oh, I'm from squirrel because that's that's who he is to me. But I only got a snippet of, of who he was. I'll never forget the first time I met him, just like everybody else. Wow, he's gorgeous. <laughs> and you know, I then would proceed to totally objectify him. <laughs> to his face though, he's fine with it. Sorry, bro. But then I realized that there was so much more cake than frosting. I mean, nothing else to say. And I say. didn't know if, like, because a lot of people go out to Burning Man and they are just absolutely free. And so you see a lot of them just being the, the, the best sellers out there. There's no, uh, there's no expectation for you to be anything other than that. And what I saw was amazing. This dude just had this, you ever see on TV like where people just kind of have this aura and they shine as they glide across the desert? He was one. He, you know, we would all stand around covered in dust, just being pissed off about how hot it was in the position that we chose to be in. Uh, we all take, we, we take the Burning Man challenge because it's not easy. And no matter what we had going on, we always had 